welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people for all people. My name is Evan, and you can't see me right now, but my hair is purple. <laughs> Stephen and Kelly, any random life changes happened in the past week? Any major changes? Um, well, n- no, I guess I'm... I guess I'm returning to work in the in the next two weeks or so. Um, my office is actually officially open to, tomorrow um, on Monday, but um, I'm going to hold off for another two weeks and and kind of let let the the guinea pigs out and see how it how the results come back before I go out. Yeah, I'm not going back to work anytime soon. Um, King County here in Washington, we're still in phase one of reopening, so no restaurants or anything open yet. Although dentists have been allowed to reopen for the last two weeks, so I'm going to get some cavities filled tomorrow. So that's my exciting Monday update. Um, but Evan, I hope your the um, hair salons in California open up soon. <laughs> so you can, if the purple hair is uh, not what you want, or if it is what you want, more power to you. You know, I think I'm going to be visiting uh, Mama Combs's barber shop uh, sometime soon <laughs> for a little <laughs> shave, so I can return back to work and not be scolded by my bosses. So, as indicated by the title of this episode, we're going to be talking about environmental justice today. In this topic, we're going to be discussing some recent events that are occurring around the United States. And as a disclaimer for discussing these topics, we're not black, and therefore this will not be an experiential or first-hand account of the injustices we are about to detail. If you are looking for an excellent experiential take on these injustices, I highly recommend NPR's Code Switch podcast, particularly their May 29th episode, A Decade of Watching Black People Die. The way we will be presenting these injustices is as allies. And if you are someone who wants to be an ally or wants to learn more about what it means to be an ally, I highly recommend you keep listening. On February 23rd, Ahmaud Arbery was jogging in Glen County, Georgia, when three white men one of which a former GCPD officer gave chase, believing him to be a burglary suspect. The men cornered Arbery and one fired three shotgun rounds into him, killing him. The three men faced no prosecution until video of the incident was uploaded to YouTube on May 5th, causing mass public outcry, which created the pressure necessary for the Georgia Borough of Investigation to arrest two of the men on May 7th and the third two weeks later. On March 13th, 1240 a.m., Louisville Metro Police break into Brianna Taylor's home using no-knock police entry, which is now barred in the state of Kentucky because of this incident. They fired shots into the room after Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, fired shots, believing the police to be intruders. Taylor was murdered by police fire, and it wasn't until Sean King posted about her death on social media that the story gained national attention. The crime Taylor was accused of was selling drugs. However, no drugs were found at the apartment. On May 25th, George Floyd was shopping at Cup Foods when an employee accused Floyd of using a counterfeit bill to pay. Four police officers arrived at the scene and, after a brief struggle, one of the officers pins Floyd to the ground with his knee on his neck, while another pins his legs and another pins his torso. The fourth officer watches as Floyd gasps, I can't breathe. He says those words at least 16 times in the five minutes of the incident that were captured on camera. Despite none of the police officers wearing active body cams, video of the incident went viral, and as of the time of recording, only one of the four officers is being charged for third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. That same day, 
Christian Cooper, an avid bird watcher, asks Amy Cooper, no relation, to leash her dog while passing through the ramble in Central Park. Amy Cooper gets defensive, and after Christian Cooper attempts to coax the dog away, Amy Cooper calls the police and specifically notes that an African-American man is harassing her in Central Park. Fortunately, the situation calmed as responding officers recognized the incident as a verbal dispute and nothing more. However, the choice specificities in Amy Cooper's description of Christian Cooper imply that not only is she aware on some level that his blackness could be used against him structurally, but that she felt entitled to structural safety over him, choosing to call the police rather than settle the issue together. Of course, a common element in each of these stories is the United States law enforcement, particularly the way U.S. law enforcement and the citizens who feel more entitled to their assistance respond to minor crimes like using counterfeit money or harassing someone by asking them to keep their dog on a leash. So why does the U.S. law enforcement strike down so harshly on these minor crimes? So the reason why small crimes are considered such a big deal in the United States, it's based on this theory called the broken windows theory. This was first proposed in the 1960s, but it gained widespread acceptance, um, particularly in the 90s when um, Governor Mayor sorry, Rudy Giuliani of New York adopted this as part of his tough-on-crime policy. So the idea is that you would strike down on smaller crimes or misdemeanors in crime-rampant cities to mitigate the frequency of major crimes. For instance, if someone smashes a window, you would persecute that small crime because having a cleaner neighborhood would um, decrease the amount of bigger crimes. Initially, this was a success because the adoption of this policy led to a huge decrease in violence in New York City. However, there were increasing amounts of skepticism because actually there had been a huge spike in crime before that, so the decline in crime could be seen as reversion to the mean. A lot of other cities that didn't adopt such policies also saw decreases in crime. Um, and there's also other reasons for that, for the declining crime, such as um, a booming economy and the end of the crack epidemic. Over time, this theory morphed into stop and frisk, essentially, oh, if actually catching these small crimes could um, mitigate bigger crimes, then what if we actually just stop suspicious people from committing crimes before they started? Unfortunately, people who are black are more often seen as suspicious. This is a policy um, adopted under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And so the theory of broken windows and stop and frisk combined with socially ingrained racism leads to cases like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Christian Cooper, where these policies in and of themselves even if they're fine, they're added on top of the racist power structures that already exist in our society and results in Black people being unfairly and disproportionately targeted by these practices. But police brutality is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to racism. Even if all police brutality stopped, there would be a lot of racism present in our society. So I'll hand it over to Stephen to talk a bit about environmental racism and environmental justice. So as you said, Kelly, you know, police brutality is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, when we think about police brutality, it's something that you can really overtly see with your own eyes. You can hear it. You can see a video of it shared on social media. It's very overt and it's in your face. However, we can't make the mistake of thinking that police brutality is the expression of all kinds of racism in society because there's a lot of implicit and subconscious racisms either that we have inside of ourselves as individuals or that are baked into the structures and the foundations of our society um, or structural racism. So, however, the, the problem, while well, we look at police brutality as, a, as an obvious um, problem that we have and that we need to fix, there's really a much 
deeper set problem in our society. It's, it's a type of insidious normalization of anti-black mentalities and um, implicit biases that really permeate throughout every single one of our institutions. And they consistently produce adverse outcomes for people of color. Really, all other forms of racism stem from this type of structural racism. Environmental racism and environmental justice is one other example of this kind of structural racism. Um, and it's essentially the idea of how societies are structured so that specific communities um, bear the adverse effects of pollution and climate change. So these, these kinds of situations, again, are systematic, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. And to talk about this um, environmental racism and environmental justice themes, I'd like to introduce my friend Serena Patel. I met Serena during, uh, during college, and she and I were co-leaders of this student group called Solar Spring Break Team. In this group, we, we fundraised money to um, buy and install solar panels on low-income communities in our neighborhood, as well as teach a class on environmental justice in California. Solar Spring Break Team was also partnered with his nonprofit called Grid Alternatives, which focuses on expanding solar access to lower-income communities. Because, look, we can all agree that solar energy is a great technology. It's great both ec economically and environmentally speaking. But the question is, who has access to this technology? The data shows that it is primarily upper-middle-class and upper-class white families. Um, however, those lower-income communities are still being left behind in this environmental transition, and it's important that we um, address them in this transition as well. Grid Alternatives also provides job training and um, makes sure that people are being trained to join the solar workforce. So Serena also worked in developing microgrids for energy and water systems in informal settlements in Kenya, and she is all around a, a badass in both the energy and the environmental justice community, and for this episode today, she's prepared for us an educational seminar on environmental justice 101. Well, take it away, Serena. Thanks, Stephen, for the introduction. The climate movement is about fighting for the basic fabric of life. It's directly related to racial justice and oppression because the police uphold a system that does not support life. How I first got introduced to the environmental justice movement was from working with Grid Alternative's Solar Spring Break program. I learned more about how solar panels and distributed energy resources like that deployment can perpetuate existing inequities. And I think that something that most clearly shows this is a paper in Nature, or a paper published by Nature, by Deborah Sunter and Sergio Castellanos and Dan Kamen. And they've used Google Project Sunroof data and census data um, to clearly reveal that Black majority communities in the U.S. have the least amount of rooftop PV and white majority communities have more. And all this analysis is available online because they control for different variables. But inherently, like we see that, yeah, I mean, there are policies aimed at remedying these issues, but how effective are they and how much systematic change needs to happen? So the environmental justice movement really just redefines environmentalism. It redefines the environment as where we live, work, play, and go to school. And this is an important point because before um, the environment was kind of oh, that's the nature thing over there in the mountains. Um, not everybody has access to hiking trails and can have that 
access to the environment, but it's more about conservation. And I'm not trying to put down conservation efforts because obviously that's great for the planet, but it was built on the backs of pushing indigenous communities out of lands as well. So it's it's redefining how we need to look at the environment and how we interact with it. And environmental justice embraces the principle that all people and communities have a right to equal protection and equal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations. So Dr. Robert Bullard is a pioneering scholar and activist in the environmental justice movement, and his work has highlighted how race and class still matter and map very closely with pollution and unequal protection and vulnerability. Certain zip codes are literally subjected to elevated environmental health threats and higher rates of preventable diseases like asthma. Race plays a huge role in the siting of toxic facilities. And some people say it's class, but racism touches every institution, like employment, housing, education, land use, and decision-making. Race is inherently a factor in the decisions of people in power. Racism exists in environmental policy, too. It exists in enforcement and land use, and racism is part of the institution and environment that we're working in. So we need to dismantle it. Um, And that's really hard and uncomfortable. Anyways... The environmental justice movement started in the 60s with Martin Luther King Jr. going to Memphis to support environmental and economic rights of striking garbage workers. Then in 1982, in Warren County, North Carolina, there were protests and over 550 arrests go over the siting of the PCB landfill in a mostly black community. And this coined the term environmental racism. Outcomes of studies after understanding environmental racism or trying to understand environmental racism showed that three out of every four commercial hazardous waste facilities were located in mostly black neighborhoods. And repeatable results were found in different geographies and trends were and these similar trends were found in updated versions as well. Now, that led to a 1991 response to environmental racism. So in 1991, there was a first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit where um, they defined 17 principles of environmental justice. And it was really important to outline these principles because it shows there are conflicting agendas of bigger white dominated mainstream environmental groups, but that they needed to talk about that and come to agreements. And I encourage you to look at those 17 principles to really understand um, the environmental justice movement and what it stands for. This all comes at a time, um, or I'm telling you this at a time where there's a global pandemic and we've seen that COVID-19 has disproportionate effects on Black communities, 25% of U.S. COVID-related deaths are Black. And this is just another case of institutional racism. And it's very frustrating because it's affecting the lives of Black communities. And we're part of the environmental movement and we want to be supporting lives. This means that we need to address racism in not only like what we do, but in everything of what how we live and work and relate to other people. Now, for larger, so this was more about the U.S. environmental justice movement, Um, but there is a global environmental justice movement as well, because when we look at sustainability, like we have to think about who is it for? Like this sustainable, like we have all these sustainable development goals um, defined by the U.N., but who is the development for? What is it going toward? I guess like we 
are sourcing most of our minerals right now. Like how do our, uh, from African and South American nations in very environmentally degrading ways and um, socially degrading ways as well. So how do we contend with that? We're also dumping all that e-waste also in different communities around the world. And these environmental goods and environmental bads are just so disproportionate in who they affect. A note I would like to end with. We need justice for people and the planet. So we're not going to be doing our usual zany climate fact of the day because based on the topic, it would feel uncouth to do so. But we still felt that the episode needed a moment of levity. So to do so, we're going to be reading a select few of our favorite celebrity tweets from the past week. So starting out, we're going to start out with um, my personal favorite, uh, John Boyega, who said, Man, I really fucking hate racists. Which seems like an expression that's hard to argue with, but uh, tell that to Twitter trolls who have been going at them nonstop. So this tweet doesn't have a source, but uh, we, we felt it was, it was necessary to share because it, it brightened all of our days. So uh, let's travel back in time to the 2009 Grammys. Kanye comes up on stage, interrupting Taylor Swift's acceptance speech, and says that Beyonce had one of the greatest music videos of all time. Bring, bring. Who is it? It's 2020 calling. One of these people will be calling President Donald J. Trump out for stoking white nationalist racism, while the other is shamelessly shilling for a vile racist. Can you guess who's who? And finally, um, perhaps the most poignant of all of these tweets is that of Martin Luther King III, who tweeted, As my father explained during his lifetime, a riot is the language of the unheard. So if the riot is the language of the unheard, what are things we can do to make sure that these people feel heard and listened to? I think that's the core of allyship, which is what we're going to be talking about in the next um, part of this episode. These terrible things have happened. On some level, they're going to continue to happen. And so what are the things that we can do as allies to help? First, um, allyship. We need to recognize that we're on the privileged side of an oppressive divide created by society. And as allies, we need to actively engage to implement strategies for dismantling this divide and also actively questioning the ways that we benefit from this divide and how we could be complicit and what we can do to help. So I think there's a lot of great keywords in there, but a lot of it sounds kind of vague, especially to the average listener. So what does it mean to like engage, actively engage to implement strategies of dismantling the divide? Like what do, what are all of those terms? What do they really mean? Yeah. I think that's, you know, you know, people might ask, you know, what, what does that actually look like in your day to day? Or how, how do we actually implement that real, real change in effect? Um, and what, the way I think about it is you kind of start, you have to start with yourself, right? Um, I myself as, am an, in, as an individual am an American, I'm a Peruvian and I'm a Chinese person. And that, that means that my identity has complex relationships with blackness in America. And the way that my relationship is with blackness is going to be different from the way your relationship is with blackness in America. Um, and it's going to be different from how a, um, a white person will have um, their relationship with blackness. Um, a lot of times being Asian means that you are comparatively seen as a model minority. Um, and that has implications that both benefit and 
hurt um, Asian individuals, but that is vastly overshadowed by how it how it affects Black communities to be compared to um, in this in a hierarchical way. Um, so the way I, I think about it is to, um, and this might be different from from. I guess this is just how I think about it personally, but I think about what my individual relationship is with these myths that we've created in society. And I try to engage with that and, and really just reach out to my black friends in life, but whether they are friends in life or, or coworkers or educators or mentors in any, in any way that I have that relationship. And I try to reach out to them in good faith and honestly um, and sensitively and, and, and listen to what they have to say. And, you know, and importantly, believing them, it's really easy to, to listen to, to a black individual and tell their story and kind of a knee jerk reaction might be, Oh, I'm sure you're a little, you're exaggerating that a little bit. And that's really problematic. So really trying to engage with their truth and, and elevating their voices, um, especially when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And one important thing, especially in the environmental community, is that a lot of environmental movements have traditionally been led by white people. So what we've talked about um, earlier is how pollution disproportionately impacts black people. And a lot of the pollution regulations actually, just as a result, disproportionately help black people because the pollution that's coming out of these power plants, the power plants are disproportionately located in black communities. As a result, cleaning up the pollution benefits these communities more. However, they're not the ones who have a seat at the table. I've seen some organizations, um, a lot of organizations seem to be making a lot of noise about how they want to be more diverse and equitable and inclusive. And then on the picture on their website where they talk about these initiatives, it's a picture of like 90% white people. And I think for everyone who's in the environmental movement, think about, okay, what can we actually do to bring people of color into positions of leadership, have them at the table making these decisions rather than saying, oh, well, we know what to do to like produce these policies that will disproportionately help you, but without giving them the seat at the table. Yeah, and to- totally like real world example of that is probably the solar industry of which I'm a part of. Um, the solar industry is largely white and also largely male, which is a remnant of being um, from, the, from the, the oil industry, which is largely what the energy industry is, um, is people coming over from oil to solar. Um, so that's another situation where we really need to make a concerted effort to elevating black people to um, to get the skills and get the leadership potential to get in those positions of power um, within industries and make decisions there. Yeah. And I think we as allies, um, what we should be doing is supporting organizations like Great Alternatives, which are actually investing in those communities to do job training for underserved communities, indigenous people, black people women to get the skills to enter the industry because this is not something that's going to go away if we're just colorblind. If we're colorblind, then that essentially means that we're ignoring the inequities that exist today and we need to actively be taking steps to reduce these inequities. Yeah. And like on that point, it's like, if you really want to think about how can I contribute, how can I be a part of the solution? Um, you know, a lot of people might think it's, you know, I want to get involved in this movement and I want to, um, be a leader, which is a great thing, don't get me wrong, but that being said, a lot of allyship is learning how to radically take a step, a step back and radically take a seat to the side and allowing other people to come up and step up and be leaders themselves, especially um, historically disadvantaged people. Um, so on that note, a lot of times in the environmental community, 
um, you, um, in the environmental justice community, you know, don't just start your own organization and um, kind of take the spotlight. Instead, maybe focusing on um, supporting organizations that are already existing and that are being led by black leaders in the community. So some of those organizations are Hoover Elementary in Oakland, um, Planting Justice, uh, Grid Alternatives, which we've mentioned, um, which is um, national and even international as well, and another, another um, organization called Chicago Eco House, which you'll hear about in the future. Um, yeah, and I want to um, give a shout out to the project at Hoover Elementary. So this was a project that um, Serena led um, while she was at Berkeley, um, and I also volunteered there a few times. So the garden teacher at the school, she referred to them as like, we're black kids in the hood, and they live in a food desert. They don't really have access to fresh food. And the purpose behind the school garden was to educate the kids about like eating fresh vegetables and getting them outside because that's something that um, they tend to lack access to. And we, as students at Berkeley, we uh, just provided technical expertise on various projects that they had and provided our labor um, during the garden parties that they hosted once a month, which was, I think it was a really meaningful experience. And just in terms of like building community was really powerful because beyond just, so I think right now what we're seeing is that there's a crisis. There's been so many hugely visible incidents of police brutality recently and everyone's outraged. But after the outrage dies, what are we going to be doing continuously on a continuous basis to try to build this community, build connections? One quote that I saw recently was a lot of the crises that we're facing are rooted in heartlessness. And so what we need to do to solve these problems needs to be rooted in, and we need to cultivate enormous heartfulness and things. And so what I'm personally committing to do is finding an organization in my community here in Seattle um, in a black community that's led by a black leader and um, figuring out what my friends and I can do as allies to support them, whether it's donating money, donating time, technical expertise, whatever, like just supporting them and helping out in whatever way that we can. When we're talking about these um, environmental justice organizations that are majority white members, do you guys think the onus is more on senior white members to step down and allow POC members to step up in those leadership roles? Or do you think it's more on these organizations to lift up other organizations like Hoover Elementary, Grid Alternatives, Chicago Eco House that are majority POC? And which do you think is the more realistic option? So I would not say that the environmental justice organizations are majority white. I think like a lot of the mainstream environmental organizations, Sierra Club, Environmental Defense Fund, um, among other things, they are founded and led by white people. And I think their kind of mission is like the big tent, like they just focus on environmental issues as a whole, things like climate change. And I think a lot of the environmental justice organizations, it's the intersection between things like climate change and racial justice. And I think within these big organizations, I mean, they have budgets of like hundreds of millions, whereas a lot of these smaller community organizations are maybe their budgets are like in the thousands, tens of thousands. And that would be a lot of money for them. And so I think this kind of analogous to saying like, oh, should the 
the presidency or whatever be supporting these smaller um, organizations that are led by people of color? Or should we actually be working to get more black people elected into like the House, the Senate, the presidency? I mean, both can simultaneously be true. Um, and I think like these large power structures that exist, like they have a lot of power and it's important to have everyone given a seat at the table. I think, um, you know, I think I agree with Kelly's answer and it sounds kind of like a cop-out answer to some extent of like, I think the answer is both really. Um, I, I think it sounds kind of cheap because it's, it takes, um, well, I think it just sounds a little cheap, but I think it's, I think it's the right answer because it really shouldn't be an either or situation. What I would like ideally is for people, all people to really self-analyze themselves and, and the institutions that they're a part of, the organizations that they're a part of, and, and the leadership that they, that they have. And yes, so I think within a large institution, like a, a different environmental uh, group, they should be elevating people of, people of color within that organization. Also, I think that they should be reaching out to other organizations which are led by people of color. And it really, it really needs to be a across-the-board systematic overhaul of how we look at race in, in our society. In, in terms of what is going to be easier to do, I think that's, that's, that's a, that is a useful question to ask because we don't live in an ideal world. So I think, yeah, what, in terms of what is more practical and easily, easily done, I would say probably reaching out. I personally would say probably reaching out to those other organizations because I have experience with I have, I have experienced um, leadership be uncomfortable and unwilling to really adapt too much um, to change their status quo too much. And it's easier to kind of reach out to someone with expertise in that area and just and support and provide support to them than to make yourself change, I think. Yeah, but then if that's easier, then I think it's ultimately more important for like we like to talk a lot about win-win solutions. But the reason why that's kind of BS is that ultimately to achieve true racial justice, like white people will probably have to give up some of the power that they currently hold. And for a lot of people, that makes them extremely uncomfortable. And I think it's if you're in a position of power, you should question why that makes you uncomfortable. Ultimately, it's, that's going to be something that's going to need to happen. And now it's time for the best name segment in podcast history. It's the Green New Spiel. So I, this, this week for my Green News Spiel, I'd like to point out a Trevor Noah video from The Daily Show. He posted it. It's about 18 minutes long, and it, um, in my opinion, it's one of the most poignant and um, well-articulated responses to this whole um, situation. So Trevor was born and raised in South Africa during apartheid, where his mother and father had to walk separately on the sidewalks. Um, so he, in the video, he addresses multiple different things, but the part that I would like to specifically point out was he addressed the narrative of quote unquote, why are they looting? Right. That, oh, that's productive. Why are they looting? Right. And I think it's a very interesting question to ask because I see where that question comes from. And I think a lot of well-meaning people also ask themselves this question. And I think it's, I, I have an emotional reaction to that. That, doesn't, that won't really satisfy any of them, but I think Trevor does a really good job of explaining it logically about how to answer that question. So, you know, um, what he says is when you boil it down, you have to ask, when someone asks why are they looting, you have to ask, what is society? He talks about Malcolm Gladwell, who defines um, society really as a social contract. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, David and Goliath, 
he mentions um, that for any society or a legal structure or organization to be legitimate, the people within that structure need to agree on three core principles. One, need to agree on what the principles are. Two, have to agree that the powerful will enforce those principles fairly. And three, we have to agree that everyone in that society will be treated fairly according to those principles. So it is safe to say that in the last two weeks, black Americans have seen their end of the bargain completely shredded up. That contract doesn't exist for them, and therefore they've been completely delegitimized. Those principles do not apply to them anymore in America in 2020. Um, and they and arguably have never applied to them since the beginning of, of this country. So the system, the powerful, have torn up their side of the contract. So what vested interest do black Americans have on their side to uphold their end of the bargain? That's why people are looting, Trevor argues. That's why, and, and he doesn't go so far as to condone it. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay that they're looting. No one likes to see that. I don't like to see that. But I understand why they do that. And I think Trevor does a really good job and a much better job than I could ever do justice to, to the idea of answering that question. Thank you, Stephen. And now we'll hear Kelly's Green News spiel. In addition to the Intersectionalist Environmental Pledge, I also like to share a book that I've been reading called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Essentially, um, it's a book about why talking about race makes people so uncomfortable and why we should, instead of feeling uncomfortable, actually engage with these topics. As people who aren't black, as white people or Asian people, we typically don't think about race on a day-to-day basis. And engaging in these conversations can be really uncomfortable, but we have to engage with these issues because it's black people have no choice to engage with them every day. I've seen this quote saying, it's not whites versus black, it's not cops versus civilians, it's, not, um, it's everyone versus racists. But I don't think it's even everyone versus racists. Because that pushes the problem onto an other. Like, look, oh, that guy over there is obviously racist. That's bad. We can be against that. Unfortunately, we're all complicit in structural racism. And if we're not black or people of color, we benefit from the structural racism. So it's on all of us to educate ourselves, challenge ourselves, and make ourselves feel uncomfortable about our own biases and work to change them. However uncomfortable it feels for us to talk about race is nothing compares to how it feels to be black in America every single day. So... Um, ultimately, I think the most important thing for us to do as allies is on some level just to shut up and listen to what black people have to say. Read books by black people about um, how the structural inequities have been created and really just continue to engage with these issues. Be fine with the fact that it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. Another quote from Dr. King that I really like is that we must work not towards a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, but a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Right now, we are in, we're experiencing a lot of tension. We shouldn't just wish for that tension to be gone. We should actually wish for a world that's full of justice, in which there will be no structural systems that will cause these crises to happen. So in our own lives, um, in our relationships, in our families, talking to people we know, just bringing up these uncomfortable conversations and working through them, I think is really critical to um, build a more just society. All right. Thank you, Kelly and Stephen, for your green news spiels. And with that, we end the segment and we end the show. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. Now, I usually end this show with a call to action to support the podcast, but I'd be greatly remiss if I didn't use this parting moment to urge you, the listener, 
to action against the racist, corrupt systems endemic in our United States law enforcement. I've seen countless tweets, posts, and videos shared through various social media platforms that condemn the acts of Derek Chauvin and other police officers who are just as guilty as he is. And your words are important, but they are not enough. We need paradigm-shifting systemic change in this country, and words aren't going to cut it. We need action, and more clearly, sustained action. We need to be signing petitions, donating money, voting in local and general elections, and above all else, we need to be protesting. We live in a democracy, and the ultimate goal here needs to be structural change. We have the receipts. We've seen consistent, racially motivated acts of brutality committed by our law enforcement against our fellow people. To simply condemn and move on is to be a bystander to these acts. We owe it to our fellow people, to our future people, and to ourselves to act. Act now and keep acting. Because if you really want to see policy change and systemic change in this country, that is how. Thank you. Thank you.